You're listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast, discussing all aspects of precision and long-range rifle shooting. This episode is brought to you by Impact Dynamics, advanced training for the precision shooter. And now, over to your hosts. Welcome to the Precision Shooting Podcast. This is episode number three. I'm Rusty, and with me is Greg. How you doing? And also Andrew. How you going? Excellent. All right, guys. How's everyone been? Shooting? Yeah, we had a little bit of a long-range day. A week and a half ago. A week and a half ago, yeah. yeah. That was good. Um, that, you, well, good, good good. if you're good at reading wind. That was a challenge. Well, it was a good training day, really, I guess, and that's the whole idea of it. So, Yeah, yeah. certainly. The, uh, the, the wind where we were shooting was picking up and uh, then dropping off and going back the other way within seconds of each other. It was uh, something I've not experienced before. It was excellent. I loved it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you uh, you mentioned you were watching the crop sort of blowing one way, then circling and blowing the other way. So Yeah, so one of the training exercises we were doing is I, I was standing out with a radio and a kestrel, and I was hundreds of metres away from the, the guy we were training with, and he was trying to guess the wind of where I was, and I was obviously then confirming it for him, and I saw the, the crop was, the, the heads were blowing one way, and... and then I saw them start spinning, and uh, it felt like something out of a horror film for a moment. And then they started blowing the other way, and uh, it's something that was very, very unique and uh, hadn't seen before. But it was good to see. Yeah, excellent. Greg, did you you went shooting or you tried to? Yeah, um, I went to a local property, and um, the, although we, we we saw a bit of movement, <clears throat> unfortunately there was no um, uh, no foxes shot. No work. Pretty much we accidentally almost dropped on top of each fox. So we sort of startled them, drove onto them. Oh, okay. So, yeah, oh, they, were, no. they were on the way out each time. But um, no, there was there was good movement. I'll, I'll get back there soon and hopefully knock a couple over. Oh, I'm sure you'll get it, mate. Absolutely. Mm. Do you want to give us a uh, bit of an update on where you are with your build that yeah. we've been talking about? Yeah, so um, since last episode, I've, I've committed to a barrel. Now we in I, I did listen back to last episode and we're talking like six months, nine months. Wait, how long are you waiting? Yeah, uh, I already have it at home. You so, have it, yes. Um, Righto. Who who do you know that managed to get you that? Because um, well, what I did was uh, I, I was ideally looking for a, a heavy varmint profile in twenty six inch. Yep. Uh, in a Bartland barrel, they did have a Bartland barrel and heavy varmint profile, but it was thirty inch long. So yeah. I went with the 30-inch. Uh, they had that in stock. Um, what I was actually after was not in stock. Mm. Um, so that was through 7millimeter.com.au. Um, yeah, a think bit of a shout-out. Yeah, I think they're in Queensland. But, yeah, really good to deal with. Excellent. Um, so, yeah, he's, he sent that down. I committed to that. So and you had it already. What twist rate did you end up going? I with? went with the 1 in 8. So yep. very close to the optimal, you know, the optimal listed yeah, burger. There, yep. there was an optimal. You could get a barrel in... Seven, one twist and seven point seven five. But I, I'm I'm happy with one in eight. That's close enough for me. That'll um, do the job. That'll do the job. And um, yeah, so I'm happy. I've seen you shoot, mate. It won't be the barrel. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So did you end up? Was was that barrel fluted, Greg, or was it just straight? No, just straight varmint. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, the next step, we'll obviously get it fitted. But I think now yeah, Christmas is close. I'm a bit low on money, so I've got, I've got to get through the Christmas thing. And then I'll I'll probably look at getting the the magazine system put on, so I know how much overall length I've got to deal with, before yep. I get the barrel cut and and placed in. So that'll probably be around the January February. 
now, time period. Two things I want to I want to ask you, um, and, and I don't know if you want to go into in depth at the mm. moment, but you said twenty six inch was what you're going for. How, how did you arrive there? Or yeah. what's, okay, if, um, or if we opened a can of worms, mate. Uh, not really. Um, for those that are subscribed to the Precision Rifle blog, they just put a uh, an article up on barrels used in the Precision Rifle series. Yep. Uh, in that, the predominant barrel length in the top 100 was 26 inch. There yep. was very few above that. Uh, there were a few below it that performed quite well, actually, 20 and 22 mm-hmm. inch. So th- there's a really good article that we'll probably talk about later on. Sure. Um, and yeah, I, we can... We I, can discuss that one next episode yeah and, and i haven't committed to a length but that's just based on that article you know that's the sort of length i'm looking at and we could we could talk about that maybe on a uh, next week another show or yeah sure yeah. yeah i think barrels i mean we talked about it a little bit last time but there's certainly heaps more to discuss so we, mm. we certainly can probably bring it up again next time and i guess with if you're going 26 you can always bring it down a little bit more if you if if you decide that, that that's appropriate for what you're doing yep absolutely i think um you know, I said we'll go into it further, but you know the, you know the small sort of efficient rounds like you know what you've selected don't necessarily need a thirty or thirty-two inch barrel to maximise potential out of them. So, yeah, you know, mm. again, there's a lot there to, to discuss, and I think we'll hook into that at a, probably the next episode a little more. So, no worries. And something else that's got my attention from what you said um, was about magazines. Now I don't want to necessarily get into it now, but I think yeah. that's probably another. Another episode in a couple of couple of uh, eps time that perhaps we can talk about different magazine systems because you're obviously going through that at the moment. Yeah, and a lot myself, I don't know a lot about magazine systems, so it'd be good to maybe ask the questions here rather than rather than externally, and then any listeners can benefit from the sort of decision making process, I guess. Yeah, excellent. So, yeah. I mean, look, the, the common ones are going to be AI, I guess, but there are other options out there, and, and whether or not that's going to suit you or what you're doing. Yeah, but and just how much overall length they give as well. That's sort of what I want to look at and understand, you know, where do I want to go in terms of overall length in the magazine and then get the barrel cut to suit that. So that's sort of where I'm heading with that. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, given the, the pretty short or relatively short length of the, the round you've chosen, it kind of gives you a lot more to play with. Um, you know, a lot of the magazine systems are based on a 308 length. And, and so you're sort of limited if that's the length of the round you're using. But given you go on a shorter cartridge, you've often got quite a bit more to play with. But again, you know, we'll, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a lot more of discussion topics there. So, Yeah, cool. I think, I think we'll schedule that one in. Uh, that would be very good. Now, something else, I mean, if that's the, the end of your update, Greg. You uh, yes, else? mate. Yeah, yep. that, that's pretty much a summary of what's going on. Cool, yep. mate. Um, now, something else I saw uh, this morning, actually, was uh, from Applied Ballistics, uh, which is uh, what um, Brian Litz is heavily involved with. He uh, put up a post. Uh, I'll read it word for word. I'm taking suggestions for research topics that we can explore and publish. Primarily, the intent is to identify some content for the next volume of the Modern Advancements in Long Range Shooting series. Any suggestions can be considered even beyond the scope of that series, though. Here's some contents that's planned for the next volume to give you an idea of what we're doing. Exploring dispersion, 1 MOA groups at 100 yards and half MOA groups at 200 yards. Rimfire ballistics, muzzle velocity and BC test results for many common rimfire types out of various length and twist barrels. Pointing and trimming bullets, effects on uniformity and magnitude of BC. 
If you have an idea for a test that you've always liked to see done, please reply with ideas. We always try to do relevant work, meaning topics shooters are most interested in. No better way to do that than taking input directly from the shooters. Thanks, Brian. So um, I guess t- two things. One, if anyone listening actually has something that they want you know, tested by a ballistician in, in con- fairly controlled circumstances, Brian's known for doing very extensive testing on anything he challenges. Um, jump on Applied Ballistics Facebook and find that post and get back to them with, with your ideas. The other one that's on there that I'm I'm really interested to see because I've been following his results on it for a little while is that the uh, the dispersion where it's a, a, a good group at 100 but an even better group at two or 300 um, because a lot of people claim that and I don't think he's ever been able to prove it despite putting an offer out there to the rest of the world to come and try um, but anyway, that's one thing I'm interested in, and also to be exploring the rimfire side of things a little bit more, which I think is really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm aware that uh, you know Brian and I think you know, at least one or two other people had been involved in fairly extensive testing of of a whole bunch of different rimfire ammo to actually accurately establish mm. BCs, and you know, therefore, yeah. you know accurately be able to to plot your trajectories with the rimfire yep. rather than just basically guessing Hoping. which is uh, well you know i mean once you've shot it enough you could yeah. have a fair idea but being able to actually you know plot that in through a ballistic program and yeah. and utilize it so would be yeah. excellent yeah mm. and, and that's the thing with 22 it's such a great training caliber mm. you know you can go out there and plink all day for pocket change and and learn, you know, and it's they're heavily affected by wind, so you got to get good your wind calls, all that sort of yes, yeah, good stuff. So um, great but caliber. I, but I think um, that that post that uh, Brian put up is is going to be hopefully bring up some really interesting topics, not only for sort of uh, his investigation, but mm. but also for general discussion. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I'd be I'd be really interested to see what what our listeners have got to to say on on any particular topic they might want to hear about yeah absolutely um, because i mean I, I would suggest people if they've got something certainly get on applied ballistics facebook and and, and ask it directly with them yeah absolutely but, we, we, we'll share the post on our facebook mm. but don't reply to us because we'll just look at it and go yeah it's a good idea um make sure you jump across to the applied ballistics facebook and and reply to them because they actually will do something about it yeah which is uh it's good to see them actually out there asking shooters what they want to see. Mm. It's uh, yeah, it's very good to see. Mm, absolutely. So the topic tonight that we've been talking uh, about or, or saying that we're going to discuss is scopes. Now, I've got a feeling that this is one of those topics that we're not going to cover tonight in total because there is way too much detail going on with scopes. Greg, you had a, a question that was going to prompt the night, which I thought was really good. Yeah, and... You know, from my perspective, I'm not hugely up the learning curve in terms of scope technology, I guess, and, and advances. And the first question that comes to me is, you know, what scope do I need? Um, and then, you know, I hunt as well as I long-range shoot. So what, what's the scope that best shoots, suits a, a, a not-so-longer-range hunting environment, let's say 400 metres on foxes, and what's a better scope if I had a rifle that was focused on, let's say, 1,200 metre or, or a thousand meter plus gong shooting, so I guess that's my question: is what sort of options do I need to think about between those two scenarios? Because yep. what you need for one, you don't necessarily need for the other. Sure, um, certainly. Mm. 
and I guess that's going to assume. We remember we talked fairly early on that that every time you you you're compromising your gun if you're trying to do multiple things with one gun. Mm. Um, the, the cartridge itself, the gun it's set up itself, is always going to be compromised. Well, there's probably no truer point than the scope is going to be the same situation. Mm-hmm. Where if you're going to go down more of the close-in range hunting type style of setup, mm-hmm. you, you probably don't need the type of scope that you would need if you're going to shoot a thousand meters consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't actually answer your question. Sorry, Greg. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, no. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's. Um it's an interesting point, and I think it's um, maybe 10 or 20 years ago that would have been absolutely true. Mm. A lot of the scopes, if we look at what, what's being used successfully in competitions and that sort of thing, they, they are actually a really versatile uh, scope. You know, and, yes, no um, doubt. You know, the, in keeping with the series, the Precision Rifle Blog series, on, on what these successful shooters are using, yep. a lot of the scopes are a fairly... You know, they're not just high-end magnified, you know, like real high-end um, magnification there. Sure. You know, they can, a lot of the stages are not necessarily all 1,000-yard-plus stages. Yep. So a lot of the stages can simulate, uh, you know, a, a three to 400-metre shot on a fox when you don't have a lot of time. Mm. Um, and yet they've also got the versatility to, to really stretch out further. So I think scope technology has come a long way. We are spoilt for choice now. Amazingly so, More yeah. than ever before. A- absolutely. Um, there's um yeah and and scopes is something I really enjoy and I've been through lots of different scopes and tried many different things and um and uh, but certainly no no expert in it I I just I know what I've tried and I've enjoyed some of them and some of them I've moved on and um but there's a few questions that I always get asked through the training stuff we do through the shop I work at and um perhaps a couple of them we could discuss to try and narrow a few things down. So one of the big ones I get asked all the time is first focal plane or second focal plane. Um, do you, Andrew, do you want to cover off the difference? Well, I guess, um, you know, the sort of the primary difference is like a first focal plane scope, your reticle um, stays the same size in relation to the target. So if, you've, if you're winding your power up yep. um, and you're, say, you've got a reticle that has graduations for you know in, in minutes of angle or in in mills mm-hmm. those graduations stay the same um yep. which is a huge advantage if you're using your reticle to to either hold for wind or for elevation sure yep as opposed to a second focal plane scope where if you wind the magnification up the image gets bigger but the but basically the the relationship gra- between the image and the uh reticle changes so yes uh, you can't just if you want to hold for you know, hot use your reticle as a um, either windage or elevation holds. It has to be on a specified power. It can't be on any power. Yes. Yep. Um, so depending on the application, I mean, both scopes can be perfectly suited for for whatever application. But yep. I think uh, in a lot of the uh, the sort of the tactical, even hunting, long range hunting type you know situations, it's pretty easy to forget what power you're on at the heat of the moment. Very I mean, great. I've I've missed shots where I've gone oh, hold four minutes or whatever and, and I've gone okay I was on 32 power rather than 22 <laughs> power and shot way over the top so yeah missed completely yeah yeah and and look I, I've I often sort of suggest that, that um, if you're going to be adjusting your magnification commonly through 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 your hunting or your long range shooting or target shooting whatever it is if you're going to be changing your magnification a, a reasonable amount and 
using your reticle to to give any adjustments at all, then I'd always go the first focal plane option. So if you're um, like with some of the, the types of shooting we do where you're doing multiple still gongs, multiple different distances, and you actually are adjusting either holding differently or you're winding your power up, yeah, the first focal plane's a no-brainer. If you're going to be sitting at a at a fixed location, a fixed distance for the day, you know you're shooting whatever it is and you're going to be on 25 power or 30 power or something and that's it and you're, you're pretty much going to be dialing everything, then oh, I think the the money would be wasted on a first focal plane. The, the second focal planes usually are cheaper, generally speaking. Um, and so if you want to be on, yeah, 30 power and you're not really that worried about using your reticle that much, um, I'd stay with a, the second focal plane quite comfortably. Yeah, I mean, even, even guys that are, say, long-range, you know, varmint shooting rabbits and crows and that sort of thing, uh, and they're dialing everything. Yeah. You know, I know guys that dial everything and they do well. I know guys that hold and they do well. So if you're dialing everything, it really doesn't matter. It negates it, yeah. But uh, if you're using your reticle for anything, yeah. whether it be elevation or wind, yeah, it's a, a really a, a big advantage. Mm, absolutely. And, and, and it is dependent on the reticle. I mean, I've seen some first focal plane reticles that when they're dialed down to the lowest magnification, they're not particularly usable. They appear too small in the field of view. That's very true, yep. Um, but I think, again, you know, the advancements in the scopes we've got now a lot of the major manufacturers, the reticles are good. They're usable at all power ranges and they're designed well. So, Well, the flip side of that is if you dial too far up, you uh, you can, particularly with older reticles, and I've seen the newer ones certainly sort of don't seem to do this, but the older ones were a little bit too thick when you're on maximum power and you, you actually block out what target you're shooting at. You can't see it anymore. Um, I Most of my first focal plane stuff now doesn't have that issue which is excellent um but it certainly is something prevalent uh or certainly years ago it was prevalent um cool i think we've done have we done that to death greg are you you're looking at us bored yeah no we'll move on we'll move on yeah yeah, right. yeah cool uh the other question that's pretty common is mill and moa which ones the question i usually get is which one's better I, I think it's a pretty difficult, <laughs> difficult question to answer empirically. I, I, I think it's, it depends on what you're trained on and and what you're comfortable with. Uh, to me, I mean, I've always used MOA, but you know, in recent times, I, I've sort of seen the advantages of mill. Um, being in a metric sort of society, we used to tenth based system, and and for me, the the advantage of having a scope that is you know, particularly in you know most uh, mil radian scopes are point one of a mil. Yes. Yep. So it's you know one click is one centimeter, a hundred meters. It's very easy to extrapolate that out at, to whatever range. Yes. Um, it's easy. quick and easy. Yep. But I think it really depends. I mean, I've seen plenty of guys that are very experienced on the the MOA system, and they're just as fast, and they mm-hmm. can just as quickly make corrections. So. Yeah, Greg, you. You can yeah, I'm much the same as Andrew in that that I started with MOA and as soon as I hit mill, it was just easy for for me. You know, being yes. a metric head, um, I just found mills just very very simple. I can easily calculate at any distance what one click is worth in centimeters. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I just find it a natural way of doing things. Yep. Whereas MOA, it's not meaningful to me. You know, to be able to calculate what's a click worth at 936 meters, I can't do that in my head. But I can with sure. Mills. Well, I, th- um, I, th- I think it's interesting. I think a lot of guys that use the MOA system, they they look at a target or look at their fall of shot and they give a correction in inches. Yep. And, and it's a 
it's a close correlation, but it's not the it's not exactly it's, it's correct. Not exact, yeah. So, you know, it, it, yeah, it is yeah. it is quite close. I guess I I learnt on MOA and and I I got fairly experienced with MOA, and I'm I made the conscious decision um, to sell all my tactical scopes in MOA and buy everything replaced in mill, and I did that because I was I was teaching guys. Who had mill scopes, and I'm just—I was finding myself lagging behind a little bit. That I wasn't quite on the ball. If they had an MOA scope, I could just say, "Oh, this is the, the you know this is how you fix whatever problem, or this is how much adjustment to give it." Sort of off the top of my head because I knew the system fairly well, mm. um, and so I've made a conscious effort to get rid of all the MOA tactical style scopes that I had and buy mill. And that's been a very interesting learning curve of not really having a choice of dealing with MOA anymore, yeah. dealing with mill, um, because we we get guys to come out in the courses with both, and so it's it's advantageous to know both. And and my understanding of mill has grown extensively over the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think another thing too, um, a lot of people make a decision on on basically what a mill click is worth in MOA. So, you know, obviously one click of MOA is worth point two five of a. Uh, uh, MOA, but one mil click is worth. It's greater than that. It's, I'm not sure what it is. Anyone it's, else? It's about two eight or something like that. I mean one MOA. Oh uh, no, it'd be. A, or is it point three something? Yeah, I mean it's one centimeter. So at a, say at a hundred meters versus um, you know about six point something millimeters. Mm. So it's 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 coarser, and that that's another interesting point. I've heard people say mm. you know the MOA, particularly the target based MOA scopes, you've usually got, say, an eighth MOA. Yes. Which is, is considerably finer. Sure. Um, and depending on the discipline, you know, target shooting guys, if they're shooting a, a, a score match where they've they've got to shoot a target, you know, like some of the, the closer range bench rest type shoots are shot for score, not group size. Yep. So for them to be able to really accurately dial their zero, mm-hmm. it's, a you know, maybe advantageous. But Makes sense. I guess when you, you run the figures, if you're, say, shooting you know, maybe a, a 10-inch gong at a, at a 1,000 yards or whatever it might be. That's right. Mills. So, you know, it's, the, the difference is so minute, really, yes, um, yes. that it's it's irrelevant. And I think also that, um, it, well, if you're going that way with it and you're saying, well, MOA is finer adjustments, is also technically a slower adjustment then because you've got more adjustments to make, more clicks to make to get That's to the true. same point. point. So if you are competing in a more tactical style match where you're being you're against the clock and not you know you've got ten minutes to complete your shots, it's not ten minutes. Is you, you've got to set your time based on how quickly you can complete it. I guess every little thing counts, and and so if you're taking ten less clicks to get to your resolution, then then you're slightly in front now. With you know, you, you could argue the point there, and I'm not sure that will win you a match. But um, it's something other, to consider. Yeah, the other other point to make is when we compare an MOA click against a mill click, the most you'll ever be out is half a click value. The most you'll ever yep. be away from from a true zero, a, from yep. a true accurate zero. So that reduces it even uh, further again. Well, that depends on what scope you use, though, because uh, the um, the Gen 2 from the Vortex, when you set that with the mil or MOA, it's not actually based on clicks. You set it to perfect zero and oh, lock wow, it down. Really? It doesn't have clicks. Didn't you yeah. that exist? Mm. But yeah, again, well. real world. Anyway, yes. I'm, yeah. like real world. Just being pedantic with you, Greg. There. No, that's groovy. I didn't even know that technology yeah. existed. My favourite my favorite elevation turret there is. Having yeah. said that, I mean, that's a good good idea and it, you know, the way they've done it works. But 
real world advantage? Yeah, nothing. Well, having said that, it is also the top scope. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah well, that's in, true. in the precision rifle series. That's I right. don't think that. I'm feature, not sure that would make it. No. no, I think I think the you know the overall scope. Yeah, but it's a funky feature. I like it, and I think it's very uh, very cool. Um, cool. So I guess to to summarise, mill or MOA, go with whatever you know the best, uh, or whichever one you do decide. Get to know it really well, um, and and you can't go wrong if you know your system really really well. You can't go wrong. Like I think you said, Sam, uh, regarding sort of getting rid of all of, of, say, your MOA scopes and going mill, I think whatever you choose, you, you really need to stick with that system. If, if you're chopping Agreed. and changing between, um, you know, types, it, you confuse yourself really easily. Very quickly. And, and, and certainly I'm not, I'm not advocating selling all your scopes and buying them in the different setup. I, I did that out of a conscious decision to learn the other, the other, the other side of the fence, so to speak. Um, I'm not advocating that. That that was not overly smooth and <laughs> easy. That was pretty painful to to go through um, when I knew the other system so well. But I, I guess I, I did it for a reason. Yeah, and I'll just add because I I made this mistake. Don't right. buy a mixed oh, unit yes. scope. Oh my God! Don't <laughs> do point. that to yourself. Great um, point, Greg. So clarify what you're saying. There. Yeah. Well, when I was uh, early on in my scope buying career, uh, <laughs> I bought a inches per hundred yard. Tarrant scope with a mill dot reticule, and so I've got these mixed units that yep. that it's just you know impossible to use. Even if you run the zoom at, at, a, at a calibrated uh, level, yes. you, you're getting feedback in mill, but you you've got to translate that to yep. inches per hundred yards, and it just it really messes with your head. So so to clarify that, I guess that there is actually a third type of angular measurement: mill, MOA, and inches per hundred yard, which is true inch per hundred yard rather than um, MOA, which is slightly different. Um, uh, an inch per 100 yard is really not regarded as... A, you see that on the cheaper hunting scopes usually. Yeah, correct. But um, the, the point there is don't get a mill adjustment with an MOA reticle or an MOA reticle... Uh, sorry, but MOA the most, adjustment or mill reticle. The most common I've seen is, is mill dot reticle with MOA turrets. And had multiple manufacturers do that. Well, that's that was a you know, um, uh, United States Marine Corps standard, for some reason. Yeah, they they did that as a standard. Yeah, and I, uh, yeah, it's because yeah, they do everything in mills. You know, the navigation and everything. So to to throw that in is uh, yeah. the MOA is yeah. Broad. I think they've they've gone away from it now. I, I, I believe. believe it's all changed. Yeah, yeah I, I and agree. I think it's it's all mill, and and it it makes a world of sense. I mean, <laughs> there's no no valid reason to go with a mix and match, but no, because you're getting wrong data, and anyway, you've got more calculations to do. So so basically, the long and short is whatever you whatever system you use, Stick. make sure your turrets match your reticle. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, cool. So another another question that often is asked is elevation versus magnification. So people seem to think that the further you shoot, the higher magnification you should get. So if you're trying to shoot a two kilometer shot, you should get a fifty power scope, and if you're trying to shoot a three kilometer shot, you should get an eighty power scope. Andrew, you want to clarify, perhaps? Well, I guess there's, there's a couple of issues there. One is is normally, I mean. Generally speaking, there are exceptions, but is if you were to get a 50 or an 80 power or something like that, the elevation range you've got is normally reduced compared um, to the compared low. to say a, like a, a five to 25 or thereabouts. Yep. I mean, there are exceptions to of that. Um, you know, I believe 
what the Bushnell XRS, which is a four and a half to thirty, has mm-hmm. on paper more elevation than the uh, three and a half to twenty-one. Yep, marginally, yep. very mar- yeah, very small a, difference. Which is normally, normally speaking, you would expect the higher the magnification, the less internal adjustment you've got. Yeah, that's usually. And that a comes down to space in the tube, doesn't it? Basically, I'm I'm not a scope technician, so I can't okay. really say. Um, I, yeah, I think there's a couple of other issues as well. Uh, mm. But, but I mean, from a from a user's perspective, I've used really high magnification scopes, and what you do get, what you lose with them is is field of view. Um, and if you're shooting 2,000 yards or metres plus, you you need to be able to see what's happening. Mm. Um, a, you, you've got no chance of following your, your trace, your, you know, your projectile trace through the air because you, it's way out of your field of view. Mm. And, uh, you know, a lot if you were using an 80 power, you may well not even see your fall of shot if you're off to the side or up or down. So Yeah, and, and I guess the, the type of shooting we're, we're talking about, we have been for a number of weeks now, is really that... Um, um, I don't like the word tactical, but I guess that describes it. People practical. know what you're talking practical, practical. yeah. Mm. Um, the the long range shooting, the precision shooting, um, multiple target, maybe shorter time frames. That sort of type of shooting, hunting derived, long range precision shooting, and I, I guess for that type of shooting, it's pretty common. And if you were to look at the results from that latest precision rifle or the the current precision rifle blog scope test that the majority of scopes there are going to be in that 20 to 30 magnification range top end you top mean. end yep. yeah and and the reason for that is that that's a very practical um practical uh magnification to use so you get good field of view around your target you get good amount to be able to see your wind and your fall of shot and your everything else you'll still be able to see all of these factors while you're still able to actually quarter up your target you work out where to put that reticle on either the target or off to the side if you're going to hold for windage it also allows you to have enough elevation in your scope to be able to make the distances you're going to be required to make um assuming you're majority of cases you're going to have like a 20 minute or a 40 minute bail uh, bail rail uh rail base something like that is what i was trying to say um on top of the on top of the rifle as well um and so you're you're right what you're saying before andrew is that your offset of of a high magnification scope is usually a limited um uh, a limited um elevation range and and there is technical reasons as to why um that isn't it is a fair amount to do with the inter, inner tube um but not well, how far your, your erector tube can move basically yeah that's i right. mean some of the the modern scopes you know are going larger and larger tube size well this is another discussion so, isn't it yeah yeah absolutely. And, and that's for a number of reasons you know increases field of view but also gives you more room physically in there so hmm. um I mean, and another keeping in with the you know the long range hunting slash multiple targets at varying ranges kind of shooting. Yep. If you're running an eighty power, you've got such a small field of view. If you've got to try and pick up a target, say from three hundred meters, yep. All of a sudden, out to eight hundred meters yep. quickly, and, and speed is of the essence. You've got, you've got to try and find it. It's not a practical setup. No, yeah. uh, and you would find yourself not using that high end. You know, if say eighty power is your top end, you would find yourself down a lot lower than that so hmm. absolutely i mean i've got one scope that's a that is a 55 i think 50 let's say 50 power and that's on a particular gun um that's designed to target shoot to 
to 300 meters 400 meters and and let's clarify that that at 300 400 or two three four five hundred those really high magnification scopes are actually quite useful because there's not a lot of other factors um sorry that there's less interference with some of the other factors usually you can still see the wind from the naked eye um to 200 meters maybe 300 meters you don't need the scope to be able to do that and you are trying to put it on the exact same point of the paper as your last one you're shooting for groups or you're shooting for score and so a 50 power scope is actually quite useful and beneficial for that type of thing yeah i mean i guess it's all relevant i mean you've got to keep in mind if you were to look at the equipment used by say the top f class shooters you would find a lot of these higher powered like higher magnification scopes in use because they don't have the same requirements of the scope that you know these uh you know the top level shooters in the precision rifle series are going to be needing i mean it's it's horses for courses sure um and it, so if somebody was to ask you what's the best scope it's <laughs> it's a pretty open ended question you need to ask yeah, a lot more absolutely. question than that so yeah a lot more clarification around it Greg, have you bought a, you've bought a scope recently, or what? What are you actually? We, we know a fair bit about what the project is that you're doing with your six by forty seven. What scope are you intending to put on that? Yeah, okay. So, I, um, or you I, haven't covered that yet? No, no, I haven't covered that, but I do have a scope for it. Yep. I, I bought a Bushnell Tactical Elite XRS. So yes. that's my long range scope, if you like. Sure. And that's going to go on onto the six by forty seven. So. Yeah, and no, I'm pretty happy with that scope. Um, yeah, I haven't really used it much, to be honest. No, I, no. I've, I've bought it and I've, I've fired a few shots, but that's that's about that's it. About so, it. but uh, I chose a fairly simplistic reticule because I guess that's what we're going to talk about shortly is the different reticule choices. Yep. Uh, mine's a fairly simplistic that G two. I think it's G two. Um, yep, the G two reticule from Bush. Yeah. Or? Yep. Sure. So, I've gone for a fairly uncluttered reticule. Mm-hmm. Although you'll see in the Precision Rifle blog, they talk a lot more about you know that grid style yeah. reticule at the bottom, which sure. is uh, uh, fairly common in these scopes that have been uh, that that They've are in the popular. Precision Rifle blog. Yeah. But yeah, no, I've got that scope. Pretty happy with it. Keen to use it. Yep. Um, actually, a lot of my scopes are Bushnell Tactical Elite scopes. So that, oh, here comes the plug. Yeah, yeah. it's the plug. <laughs> now, I, I think probably the only point I want to bring out is. Yeah, and they might not have the the, the high end, I guess, optical clarity that a lot of these scopes have. But from an affordability point of view and a functionality point of view, um, I think they're a really good entry level scope uh, in terms of, of of just getting out there and shooting uh, without breaking the bank. Um, so I certainly see that as a sort of a really good start point for a decent scope on a long range rifle. Yeah, absolutely agreed. I've got the same scope, but I've got the Horus H59 scope, which is one of those cluttered, gridded reticles that you're um, talking about. Um, We'll talk about reticles shortly, I guess, but in terms of back to the the Bushnell Elite series, they they came in number four on the Precision Rifle blog in terms of what they were using in PRS in the last year, um, which indicates that they're a very good scope and and they're well-priced, um, and perhaps, perhaps they're not as optically good as the ones that have beaten them, which is probably why the ones that have beaten them have. But in terms of reliability, uh, that scope for me, um, I've been using it for a few years now, has never missed, well, has never missed a beat, but never missed a click, which is critical. Yeah, I think that sort of come, you know, brings up the topic of, um, 
you know what is the you know the, a desirable or well, a critical feature, I guess. And for me personally, mechanical reliability and repeatability is is the probably the most important point. Yes, um, agreed. And I mean, for a scope to make it into the top five of that list, it's it's got to be. Yeah, you know, extremely it's a, solid. It's a contender, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and probably from my perspective too, you know, I don't have a lot of disposable income for for scope, so you sort of I get spend to spend it all on barrels. I spend it all on barrels and actions and stuff. <laughs> Just don't tell the wife. <laughs> and cameras, but, um, that's right. Cameras. And cameras and and yeah, going shooting and uh, but um, the the big thing for me is when I go to spend money, I, I look at scopes and I go, well, you get to this point of diminishing returns. So like. You get to this point where it's like, you know, that's a good, solid, functional scope, and that's where I see the Bushnell Tactical Elites. And then from there, you get these 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 optic improvements, but it costs you a lot of money to get these small jumps in performance. And I, I just see it as, you know, in terms of bang for buck, nice pun, but um, it's, it's diminishing returns. You've got to spend so much more money for this, what I perceive as a, a reasonably small improvement yeah i think it's it's one of those things that my experience is it's uh you can look through a a four to five thousand dollar scope and optically you know you'll definitely pick a difference between that and a bushnell yep is it enough that it's going to cause you issue is it going to make you miss a shot i i think no i don't think i would have ever said gee i'm not able to make that shot because i didn't have a five thousand dollar piece of glass on my rifle Hmm. um I guess if money's no object, sure. Uh, um, why wouldn't you go with that? Yeah. But the reality is, um, if you've got a scope that tracks reliably, more is, is for me the critical one. If you're dialing up and down, if you haven't got a scope that tracks reliably and repeatably, chuck then it, chuck it out. Yeah. You know, it, it, it might be a nice uh, hunting scope where you set it and don't touch any of your adjustments. Um, but in, in, you know what we're talking about, you know, mechanical reliability. I think is is the key. Is the first point. Sure. Um, you know, I, I mean, I've seen high-end scopes that don't track reliably and repeatably. Yep. Um, and I've also seen, you know, like the Bushnells, which are, you know, in some cases are half the price of some of the higher-end scopes. Yep. And yet they're solid. I mean, we, you know, I, I ran Greg's uh, XRS through a tracking test. Yeah, it test, tracked really well. Yeah. And it tracked around a, you know, a 1,200-millimeter piece of cardboard perfectly. Actually, we tracked a, um, a Zeiss the other week, a Zeiss... Conquest HD, I reckon, and um, that was one of the best tracking scopes I've seen, and that's a twelve hundred dollar scope. Now, I didn't it it struggled a little bit with elevation as the day went on, and, and and tried to push it further and further, but its tracking was sensational. Yeah, and that to me to have that confidence to know that if you dial as you know a given amount, it's actually going to adjust that much. Sure. Yeah, uh, it, it's confidence instilling, and I mean, I you know uh, you were there when we witnessed the. A particular, I think it was an eight and a half to twenty-five Leopold. Yeah, 24, 20, I think it was twenty. I think eight yeah, and a half. Yeah, whatever they are. Yeah, yes. it was you know a, an expensive scope, and it happened to be fortunate. Mark, Mark four that one. Yeah, that fortunately one. on a you know on a really really accurate rifle, hmm. and it was it was holding zero, no problem at all. But when we actually ran a box test on it, it was tracking twenty percent more. Let, then the the dialed amount is what yeah, it, it moved tracked, on target. It tracked perfectly, but it was consistently twenty percent out. Wow! Um, so when you went to put real data as a calibration point for a calculator, it would have gone berserk. Like ballistic yeah, calculator, yeah. trying to calibrate that. We, we, well, we, we, ended up, to, we didn't get to that point. I think yeah. we swapped it out that 
No, I think, I mean, we, we did some testing with him and we had him out to about 800 metres and we basically That's said, right, we did. Yeah, you, um, you know, run, the, run the, the data you've got through yeah. the ballistic program and then basically subtract 20% off that and dial it and it was dead on. In follow-up, though, we, to be fair, um, that did get sent back to um, the guys who bring Leopold in and they replaced the scope and it was the guy, um, the guy who owns the scope said that ever since it's been no problem at all and he's done the same test oh, I believe and it's been perfect mm. so that's yeah. that's good it does happen we understand that that happens um, I guess also not just to sit here saying Bushnell the best um, I've got a Carl's which I'm very happy uh, we, we just still haven't worked out how to pronounce whether it's Carl's or Carles or anyway someone will correct me on that I'm sure um, and that's one of the six to twenty uh, six twenty four eyes uh, which I'm I'm wrapped with. It's it's probably the favourite scope I've had. Optically, it's really clear. Now we we talked about before. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna miss a shot, um, because it was optically better than the Bushnell or not. Um, but it tracks really really well. It's got a little indicator that tells me if I'm on the first or the second rotation, which I really like. The zero stop is probably the easiest I've ever set. Um, one one thing I've got for you though, Andrew, is if you're in a situation where the target you're trying to see or identify is very difficult to see, I think that's where an optical optical clarity could could have the practical edge in the field. So if you're looking at say a relatively long distance and your target is very camouflage per se, um, a better optical scope may actually bring that out better. Yeah, absolutely, like definitely, and I mean I think. You know, for for the vast majority of shooters, the the occasions when that would be very valid point, we would be quite rare. Oh, I'm, I'm not um, disagreeing at all. Not, yeah. but definitely there. And I mean, look from you know military type um, perspective, yep. those guys have a have a different need. I mean, often they you know need to identify facial features and that sort sure. of thing. Yeah, yeah. Sure. But that's again not a not a problem that's faced by many people. No, um, no, no. No, I'm just so, I was yeah, look, it, yeah, looking it, for a clarification. That, it is like Greg said, you know, you, you do get better performance and there's no doubting that, but it's it's for percentage gains, it, the, you know, the dollars you have to put into it a lot more. You know, yeah. for guys that have got unlimited budget, well, why wouldn't you spend, you know, why yeah. wouldn't you go out and buy a 4 to 5,000 dollar scope that gives you Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? I would. <laughs> I just you, you just spent it all on barrels. Yeah, yeah. Just no. get another Visa card. <laughs> Excellent. Um, one of the other things that we haven't quite covered off yet is uh, reticles. Now, um, reticle design, I guess, is something that's come a long way over the last twenty years or so. Um, I mean, you go back far enough, and we're, all we had were sort of, you know, just straight, literally crosshairs. Um, and and now you've got you know the Horace reticle, which I'm using at the moment, um, I, I guess perhaps, I mean, reticles are almost a, their own discussion, really, aren't they? They're, they're so in-depth and dedicated. Yeah, I think it's one of those things. It, there's a lot you could discuss, but there's, I mean, at a, you know, sort of more brief level, I mean, it depends on what you want to do, really. I mean, if you're looking at a, you know, in a, a practical type environment, whether it be hunting or whether it be, you know, uh, field competition type target shooting, um, if time is of the essence, a lot of these, the newer reticles, like the Horace and some of the, you know, the Tremor reticles and that sort of thing, they've got a yep. lot. They look very busy for a lot of people when you look through them. And I think you're... I, I was in the... I, I said the exact same thing when I first got it. I I didn't choose it 
specifically with that reticle. It just happened to fall in front of me, really good deal, and I had that reticle and I bought it. And uh, but I made a decision early on to to learn that reticle and get used to it. And now I, you know, a gridded reticle. It's going to be hard for me to go away from um, because you've got so many. You learn to look through the the reticle, and you learn to look actually what's on the other side of it quite easily. And you've got so many options for holding wind, holding drop, and and small adjustments. And also, the second shot correction is so quick because you see you got, where you got reference points more. Yeah, at point. and I think mm. you know with even a you know say a mill dot reticle or or that style of reticle, which gives you you know windage and elevation crosshairs with graduations on them. Yep. If you're uh, say dialing elevation but holding wind you could be holding you know or if you're doing a combination of both you could be holding in dead dead sort of area of the reticle where there's no dead space dead so space yeah <laughs> isn't that right greg yeah blank space blank space <laughs> you know but what you know it's uh you, you're not holding precisely whereas if you've got a reticle that gives you direct you know actual Accurate Actual hold points, hold against, yeah, and particularly if you've got a, a spotter who's either using a, a rifle with that same reticle in their scope or a, a spotting scope with the same reticle, it's so yeah. fast. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you're zeroed and and the spotter is you know, good, he can give you he can give you reference calls for hold here and instantly. Yeah, you, know, you don't even have to touch the the elevation or the windage turrets; you can be bang onto it instantly. Mm. And you know, a lot of that. I think a lot of the, the military guys have been using it for a long time and, and they train and train and they're really fast and efficient and it's sort of flowing on now to this, you know, target shooting yeah. civilian kind of market in a fairly big way. A- absolutely. I think uh, I think reticles is probably another another full discussion to have. Um, I guess to cover very briefly, you've got your, your duplex-style reticles, your more, more traditional sort of hunting reticles. A lot of people think they give you one point of aim. I'd argue they'd give you at least five. Um, you could use. Um, and Greg's just give me give me that look. Um, yeah, there, there is certainly a way to to apply a duplex reticle and actually get a lot more out of it than what it looks like. And I remember I've seen seen guys um, where I've shown them how to get that out of a reticle, and they've just gone, "Oh wow, I didn't realise this. I thought it was a useless a useless option." Um, it's not a perhaps ideal because you're, you're making it work for you. Um, then they've got the, the BDC type reticles, the, the bullet drop compensator. So they've got hash marks and that sort of gear that give you an indication of how high to hold or the windage elevation mark or the windage marks as well. And then you've got the grid style reticles as well, which give you that full pattern. The, the Christmas tree reticles, as they're often called, that go all the way down the scope and give you left and right hand elevation. Um, and look, I think um, I'm I'm now actually going more towards the the grid style reticles, but the the straight you know um, BDC style st- stuff is quite good as well. Um, yeah, I know. Yeah. I've got um, I've got the Christmas tree style reticles for hunting, and I really like those for hunting because yep. I do a lot of red light stuff. Um, you know, is this, is this an income stream we didn't know about, Greg? Ah, yes. Well, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, no, so I do a lot of low-light conditions. Are we buying scopes and nature armors? <laughs> so yeah. I do a lot of low-light conditions. I like to have a good field of view around that particular fox. But now that I'm you know, doing a lot more shooting of gongs, I definitely like the grid style for that. So yep. if I bought that XRS again tomorrow, I wouldn't yep. buy it with the same reticule. I'd buy it okay. with the grid style because I know it's going on my gong gun. Right. And 
the hunting style guns, I'd, I'd like that nice clean yeah, okay. style. So, you know, that that's just, I bought it probably a bit early. Yep. Um, yeah. So. I think it's one of those things as well, being familiar with the reticle. Um, I mean, I've seen, you know, uh, a reticle that a, you know, a shooter we all know here uses it on uh, on a night force scope as an early reticle. It's, to me, it's one of those ones that you look at it and go, wow, that's, doesn't make yeah, a lot of sense. Yeah, I know the one. Yeah, but, he sold it actually. But he yeah, but he loves it. And <laughs> yeah. and he was intimately familiar with that. You know, knows everything about it. And you get, if you know if you know it, you're, you're going to be unstoppable with it. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, to look through, the more complex a reticle is, the more critical it is that you know that reticle. Uh, yeah. If you put a shooter behind a, you know, a complex sort of Horace reticle or Tremor reticle, that's never seen that before. They'll They're going to look at it and go, "It's too busy. Yeah. I can't see the thing." But you put put someone behind it that really understands it, and they're fast and accurate with it. Yeah, and that's probably one for the listeners is is get on the different manufacturer sites, and on their sites they have detailed descriptions of all the reticules and what information is provided on them. I know when I read about the Horus one, I was go, "Wow!" You know, it tells you that, and it's got markers for you know moving targets and all sorts of stuff that I didn't even recognise by looking at the, the reticule itself. So, yeah, definitely get on the, the, the manufacturer's websites and just look at their write-ups on the different reticules. Cool. All right. Well, um, we're, we're running out of time pretty quickly. So, um, look, I'm sure we'll talk more about scopes in future episodes because scopes are just a, a continual... Um, they're, they're an evolution of, of information that keeps coming out and more stuff is designed around them, but also that we've only covered a small portion of what actually is going on with scopes. So, um, But we do have a, a question from a listener, from Will, um, and his question is, is it good or bad to have a scope that picks up a lot of glare slash mirage? Now, I clarified with Will which one he meant, and he actually he was talking about mirage because I guess we, we'd all... Um, generally agree that glare is perhaps not a great thing and you can do things to try and reduce that and put a sunshade on and those sort of things to try and reduce the glare. So let's take that question as though, uh, is it a good or bad to have a scope that picks up a lot of mirage? Well, I think um, you know, we'd all be in agreement that it, the, the better a scope can, and, the, and the more clearly a scope can see mirage, yep. the more beneficial it is. It actually allows you to use that mirage, what the information you're getting from it, to tell what your wind's doing, you know, first and foremost. And, um, you know, I think we, we spoke about it, Greg, how, you know, a cheaper scope, it's, it's really poorly defined. You, you don't get a lot of clarity as to what the Mirage is doing. It's just general kind of murkiness. Yeah, that's right. It's it's not as, well, for me, it's not as defined. Like, you know, I look in a lot of the high-end scopes and it, it, there's just a lot of crispness to the, the Mirage and you can really pick what it's doing, you know, uh, and it's very readable. Um, yeah, whereas the cheaper scopes, it's more like just a foggy, foggy haze. Yeah, and I think you know, personally, look, um, if you've got a a really good scope that allows you to sort of utilise and use your your uh, parallax turret to to sort of see what the mirage is doing at, at varying ranges, it gives you a fair idea—not exact, but a fair idea of at what ranges the wind is changing. For example, um, that you wouldn't be able to to get otherwise. If you had a cheaper scope that didn't allow you to see that, you you would be guessing. You might not sort of see that sort of maybe between seven and 800 metres, you've got a change in the wind direction um, that you can only see because you're able to see that mirage clearly. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 
Yeah, I think I think it's good. The more you can see that mirage, the the easier it is going to be, or it helps with reading your wind. And it's not necessarily the be all end all way of doing it, but it certainly is advantageous. And it's better information to have it clear and precise than it is to not have it and not be able to understand what's happening with it. Well, I would think just you know generally speaking that the better quality optics a scope has, the more it will allow you to see that. Really. Yeah, and certainly while we're talking about it, for those that haven't tried it, if you're if you're out on the range, you've got a target a fair, fair way away, just roll your parallax, um, you know, from, from the target focus, roll it through the focus back to as far as you can and, and then back out to your target. And you can, if you do it slowly and look at the mirage, you can just see what the wind's doing in between you and the target. And that's what uh, Andrew's referring to. And then from that, you can sort of, when you do your wind call, you can sort of average it out a bit better. It gives you a bit more information to just give yourself an average wind call. Absolutely. Well, I think we've certainly gone longer than we had intended to, so hopefully that's uh, full of interesting information. Uh, If not, hopefully there's some good gags in there. Um, So thanks for listening, guys. Check out our sponsors for this episode, which is southerntutors.com.au. And if you go out to one of the long-range days, perhaps you see one of us there, I imagine, um, talking about wind and scopes and everything else we've blabbered on about. Uh, So thanks for listening. Uh, We'll be back in a couple of weeks with an episode on barrels. Cheers, guys. Thanks for coming in. No worries. No worries. Thanks for listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast. To continue the discussion, check out our Facebook page. And for more information, head to our website, www.precisionshootingpodcast.com.au. This episode was brought to you by Impact Dynamics, advanced training for the precision shooter.